let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray you would help us to slow down our lives right now. So many things going on or, or have happened over the last week. So many things I'm sure we're already thinking about for the next week. Appointments, things we have to get to, long drives perhaps that we have to make. I just pray, Father, you help us to set those things aside and to be here right now. And I pray you would help me to have the strength to preach, to have the, uh, the, the filling of the Spirit to preach. And I just pray, Father, that you would help me to be as clear uh, as I can, allowing your text to come forward and me, uh, Father, to, to hide behind it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, doing one of my periods of rest, and so I sat there and I watched a documentary about a surgeon in Texas. He was a young surgeon, came from one of the best medical schools, had uh, participated in one of the best fellowships uh, for performing spinal surgery. And there was also no doubt that the young man was brilliant. Uh, he would have had a great career in the field of research. His ideas as far as cellular regeneration when it came to the spine were way ahead of his time. But he wanted to be a surgeon. But the problem starts with the fact that every single person he performed surgery upon came out worse than they were before. Another well-known surgeon in Texas, after looking at x-rays and the files of this surgeon, said, if I had ever done one of these, I would have never performed surgery again for the safety of everyone in mind or everybody involved. Yet this young man ended up uh, performing more than 30 surgeries before anything was done. Several people died. A few were paralyzed, one uh, paralyzed from the neck down. And the rest would live with lifelong pain that was much worse than what they had before. How did this happen? How was he able to go so long? Well, as the documentary points out, first of all, because of the medical university he was hired by, didn't want their name dragged through the mud, so they quietly let him go. The next hospital to hire him wanted his certification so they could perform the types of surgery he was supposed to specialize in so that they could, perform, they could make more money. And you follow as over and over again, presidents and CEOs and department heads, they didn't want to admit what they were seeing. It would have hurt too many people's pride to stop him. It would have cost the hospital too much money to out him. Thankfully, the young man was finally, finally confronted. His medical license was pulled and, in fact, ended up in jail for one of those surgeries. Now, I would like to think that all of us would like to believe that we would have the courage and the character to say something if we had had the power to change what was happening with this young surgeon. But it really speaks to the fact that when real things, things that we value, are on the line, sometimes courage is missing. When it's our reputation, our money, when it's going to hurt our family, our cause, whatever it is, we don't have the courage. And that's exactly what was happening here with these Pharisees and scribes. Believing in Jesus would have cost them. It cost them a number of things. 
Now, there's two things that Matthew wants to do here in chapter 12. The first goes back to the end of chapter 11, where Jesus makes this beautiful offer that anybody who comes to him will find rest, or as we like to put it, would be saved. And so chapter 12 is giving us an example of a group of people, a group of religious leaders who are refusing to do so. They will not come. They will not believe. Now, the second thing that chapter 12 is being used by Matthew to show us why what is happening at the beginning of chapter 13 is happening. Why are the crowds so big? And the reason Matthew's laying out for us is that they heard Jesus teach, they saw him perform miracles, and they witnessed him time and time again beating the religious leaders at their own game. Our text this morning is really focused on the first idea why these men refuse to repent, they refuse to believe, they refuse to be saved. And what we have here really is Jesus laying out the evidence of why or laying out the evidence for unbelief. What are their signs? What are the, what are the evidences that they don't really believe? Really, what he does for us is one of the things that we can use, as Paul will tell us later in the Bible, to stop and take account of whether or not we're in the faith. Paul tells us, or the Bible tells us, to look at the evidence, to examine ourselves. And so what I have for you this morning are three points and the three evidences of unbelief that Jesus lays out here in this text. Number one, the first evidence he points out is that your words are evil. Your words are evil. Now, he uses several things in verses 33 to 37 to make it clear what he's talking about. In the King James, it calls, he, says, he wants to call them a, a generation of vipers. The image there is of a viper's den, of, uh, of the idea of snakes galore. Snakes atop of snakes. Snakes curled up with snakes. It's the idea that Jesus is saying to them that they are a collection of poisonous snakes. Now I want you, before we go too much further, remind yourself of the story of Israel in the wilderness. And one of the problems that they faced was what? Being bitten by vipers. And God had Moses construct a pole and put a snake on it. And anybody who would look at that pole would believe, and believed would be healed. And so Jesus is saying these religious men are like the snakes that the people of Israel had to deal with in the wilderness. And his evidence is this. In this chapter alone, we see the religious men accusing Jesus and his followers of breaking the Sabbath. We have recorded for us in chapter 12 that they wanted to use Jesus' visit to a local synagogue as an opportunity to trap him. And then we're told after that that Matthew tells us that they got together and brainstormed ideas about how to destroy him. Wouldn't you agree that a brood of vipers, a nest of vipers, is, this, is the image of nightmares? But I want you to understand here that Jesus, what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about his words. I don't think Jesus is talking about the kind of things that we, can kind of, that we have a tendency to say in an emotional moment. And I don't think Jesus is talking about things that we foolishly say that we don't recognize might hurt or harm somebody. What I think Jesus is talking about here are calculated words, because that's the example we see in the Pharisees. Words, letters, conversation that are being done to, to cause damage as they're intended to do. They're spoken. 
with intention to do the damage or to to do whatever it is that we want them to do. But that brings me to the second idea in the first passage here, and that is that Jesus says that the fruit betrays the tree. Now, not long after we moved here, my family and I bought a tree. We planted it in our backyard. And I would dare say a good many of you, if you went to the backyard and looked at our tree, you would have no idea what kind of tree it is. But if you came around during the time when it started producing apples, what would you know? That it was an apple tree. The fruit betrays the tree. And that's the idea that Jesus is saying words betray the person. Someone might be able to hide behind an exterior. They might be able to dress the part, act the part, but then they have to, they, they send an email. And then they send a text. Or they call up somebody, and the words they use betray them for what they are. And, it's, and it, it all sounds ominous. But Jesus is saying, listen to people, listen to what they say, how they say it, because their words betray them. Remember, he's talking to a group. He's talking to the crowd. He's trying to warn them of the Pharisees and scribes. He said, listen. Words betray the speaker. And I've seen that many times in ministry. I've seen tough Marines who never, sp- who never smiles speak words of encouragement to a, de- a dis- uh, discouraged teenager. But I've also been to church leadership meetings where things were said that made me sorrowful that should have never been spoken. Now I want you to understand the immediate reality of this text, what Jesus is saying here. The context demands to make this application. That if you do what the Pharisees are doing here, you are condemned. You are not saved. You are not a Christian. If you use calculated words for the purpose of keeping somebody from following Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. If you use calculated words to destroy the reputation of someone who is trying to get people to follow Jesus, you are under condemnation. Or let me try it this way. I know a woman years ago who was poisonous with her words. She was a pastor's wife. And it was actually several years into ministry with her husband that she finally realized she was not saved. I know of a man who absolutely ruined the name of a good pastor. Who had to later, years later, came back and repented and admitted that at the time he was not a Christian. I've sat in pastor meetings and listened to men who are called pastors say vile things, let vile things come out of their mouth. And so I am not surprised when a few years later they're on Facebook denouncing everything they taught. Let me be very honest with you. Every pastor knows there's a good chance that there are people sitting under his ministry who are not saved, even if they claim to be. And one of the things that a pastor should look out for is poisonous lips. But a pastor also knows that in every church he pastors, there are also Christians flying under the radar. Those who are never considered for leadership, those who are are never considered pillars of the church, but are daily faithful to God. These same types of people are discovered by their words. The fruit 
always, always, always betrays the tree. Well, that brings us to Jesus. Remember two weeks ago we quoted from Isaiah? That Jesus wasn't going to make a spectacle of himself. He wasn't going to promote himself. He didn't have to. Why? Because the fruit betrays the tree. Because he shows who he is over and over and over again. And that's why the crowds start to wonder. They ask the question, is this the son of David? Well, the answer is yes. But the Pharisees would not believe. Brings me to number two, the second evidence of unbelief. And that is this, your mind is dark. Your mind is dark. First thing I want to point out in verses 38 to 42 is there's a new conflict here. Up until then, it's really been Jesus versus the Pharisees. You want to think of the Pharisees, think of them as the celebrity pastors of his time. But in verse 38, we're told the scribes are there. Now think of the scribes as the intellectuals of Jesus' day. They would be the ones writing books about how to be a better follower of God. They were hyper-focused on being as religiously strict as a person could be. Now look at verse 38. He said, they say to him, we want a sign. Now this is interesting. Because either they're asking this question in arrogance, and this is another trap, or these guys really are missing everything. Because in this period of time, Jesus has said, I am greater than David. I am greater than the temple. Jesus has declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. He has healed people on the Sabbath. He has healed every, he healed the man with the withered hand. He cast out a demon. And Matthew tells us he heals every single person who comes for healing. But based on Jesus' response, I think this really is just another arrogant request, another opportunity to try to trap him. Matthew's showing us it didn't matter what Jesus did. It didn't matter what what he said. These religious leaders were never going to believe. Matthew's showing us that their motives were never pure. So Jesus says here, he says, evil people want a sign. And what he means there is that evil people want to argue. They want you to bring your evidence, but not because they want to discuss the evidence, but because they want to destroy the evidence. Jesus here condemns these men as worse than the people of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah. He calls them phony scholars who wouldn't listen. And that they would be judged by the queen of the south, if you remember from Second Chronicles, because I know you do, made a great effort to see and hear Solomon. She wanted evidence, she saw the evidence, and she believed. And so the only sign that any of these men would ever get is the sign that all nations would get, and that is that Jesus would die, be buried, and rise again. That would be the evidence they would be given. That's the evidence they would need to decide whether or not they believed. So Jesus is saying no sign is going to be given. No sign really would ever cause them to believe. But go back to the beginning of Jesus' response. He says again, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign. Jesus is using language found in the Old Testament for the description of Israel when they chased after idols. These are the terms that were used when Israel was judged and enslaved. The hearts of men were far from God. They were never going to believe. And remind yourself that Jonah was a prophet who was sent to those who were outside of Israel. And so Jesus is hinting that some or that many who are going to believe are going to come from outside of Israel. Now this is not an evangelism technique we're going to hear about, right? 
Jesus has somebody asking for a sign, and he says, no. And there's two things we need to remember. Every miracle that Jesus does is supposed to point past the miracle to something we are supposed to believe. You might remember earlier, Jesus said to the Pharisees, if he casts out demons by the power of God, isn't that pointing past to the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand? You might remember a story where the disciples, they said, well, this man is blind and lame. Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus said, no, I'm going to heal this man so that you know the power of God is near. I don't know if you know this, but there is actually an official uh, league. I, I don't know what they describe themselves, but it's an official group of skeptics. There's several famous people who are part of this group, and they get together once a year, and they invite somebody who makes a radical claim. So they'll invite a faith healer, or they'll invite somebody who claims they can levitate, or, or whatever it is that they claim. And so they'll bring him out, and they'll put him through a series of tests. Now, it appears on the surface that what they're doing is looking for evidence so that they can believe. But their purpose is actually to never believe. There will always be another test. They'll always ask for more evidence. They will never not be skeptical. And the unfortunate thing is, in our Awana program, in our youth group, and Roundup Sunday, and Wild Game Feeds, there are going to be people who sit in this pew, people who sit in that gym, who will never have enough evidence. The second thing about this, is to remind us that we are not going to argue anybody into the kingdom of God. Because it's about the disposition of the heart rather than the state of the brain. In more than a decade of ministry now, I have had people come to Christ in response to my preaching. And I have had people come to Christ in the privacy of my office. And every single time it surprises me. Just like you, I don't always know what to say. And just like you, when I think I know what to say, I say it badly. I'm not talented, special, or important in any way. So when the Holy Spirit uses something I say to change the eternal destiny of a soul, I'm surprised. But I also know there have been hundreds of messages and hundreds of office visits where people left unsaved as they walked in and unsaved as they left the church. And that is incredibly discouraging so what we have to remember is that ultimately what happens is out of our hands sometimes all we can say is christ died for your sins three days later was resurrected and that's the only thing i should be able or the only thing i need to tell you do with it what you want and that leads to number three the third evidence of unbelief and that is this your soul is empty your soul is is empty verses 43 to 45 now at first glance it seems that jesus kind of swerves off to something out of the blue but let me piece this together for you okay jesus has just told the religious leaders the only sign they're going to get is the sign of jonah that would be jesus's death and resurrection all right and we've talked about how the signs are always supposed to look past the event into a meaning And so the death and resurrection of Christ is supposed to tell us that he is God's Messiah and we're supposed to believe in him. That we're supposed to be like the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south and repent and believe. 
But then even go further back and go to when Jesus casts out the demon. Remember, he talks about how he can bind up the strong man and take his stuff. So the idea here is this. Jesus was healing. He's casting out demons. He's teaching the Bible. He's describing here in this text his work as sweeping out the house and putting things in order. And Jesus is saying, at some point, the, the time is going to come to an end. He's going to leave. And if there's no repentance, like the men of Nineveh, there's no belief like the queen of the south, he's saying to them, the evil will return and be worse than what it was before. So the idea is no neutrality. Jesus had come. He bound up the strong men. He made the scriptures clear. He did everything his father told him to do. He fulfilled all the messianic prophecies. These, pro- these religious leaders were not going to believe. They were given everything and they did not believe. And Jesus is saying to them, their condition is going to end up worse than it was before. Darker minds, harder hearts, eviler spirits. Now remind yourself also, the Bible tells us that the purpose of every demon is to possess, to torture, and destroy. So in this story that Jesus tells, this demon goes out, finds nobody to possess, nobody to torture, nobody to destroy, and goes back to where he came from. And he goes back to the person, and he finds that person as their diseases have been, uh, have been healed. He finds that person has heard the word of God. But there's nothing occupying the space. It's an empty apartment. There's no faith, no belief, no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, the apartment of the soul placed host to more evil than it had before. That's the story. Now, I know it's a bit early to talk about this. And if you have to cover your ears, that's fine. But then there's Christmas. Every year at Christmas... I tell you to celebrate. We celebrate Jesus' coming and dwelling with us. We see the generosity of God. We see heaven itself celebrate. And we have wonderful things that it means for us for Jesus to be born in the major. And every year, I tell you, in some form or another, to enjoy buying gifts and celebrating over meals and eating extra fudge and simply enjoying yourself because Christmas is not for solemn reflection. Christmas is for to dive headfirst into celebrating the birth of Jesus in every way and, know, and to do it with how we celebrate. But Easter is different. As we move closer to Easter, we're called to respond. I make a purpose as we work towards Easter to preach the gospel again and again, calling us to believe in the sign of Jonah, to repent like the men of Nineveh. And we all know there have been those who have come to Easter cantatas, those who have come to Easter services and heard Easter messages and ate Easter food and sincerely left this building in a better mood than when they arrived. Some of them might even have left saying, you know what, I should come back next week. Some might even leave and go, you know what, I really should look into Jesus. You see, they come for Easter and they, they hear the word of God and they leave having been swept out and put in order. But then Monday comes. And they have to deal with the annoying co-worker or the stubborn child. And the unbelief returns because nothing moved in. And some have repeated that cycle for years. Of course, that means that the first question I have to ask is that, is that you? 
and not just think of it in terms of whether or not you're saved. Do you ever come to church and, and have your soul swept out and put in order? Have you ever sang about how so you're so glad to be a part of the family of God or heard a message about loving those with whom you share a local church and then on Monday go back to gossip and slander your fellow believers just like before? Be warned. If God straightens you out in one area, make sure that area is filled with belief because perhaps your state will be worse than what it was before. We could sum up this entire message really by saying don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't be the kind of people who build religious exterior but show time and time again evidence of unbelief. But of course, the message here is much greater than don't be like the Pharisees and scribes. It's a warning to everyone who has ever had Jesus preached to them. It's a warning to anyone who's heard what Jesus has said or read about what Jesus did, and their only response is to put on some phony religious exterior. At some point, you're going to slip up, and the evidences of unbelief will make themselves known. Jesus is greater than Jonah, who preached to the most wicked nation of his time, and they repented. Jesus is greater than Solomon, and the queen of the south made great effort to hear him, and when she did, she believed. This was what was expected of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what still is expected to believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray we would, if there are some who wonder where they stand with you and their relationship with Christ, I pray they would look seriously at these evidences. Father, for those of us who truly are in Christ, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have allowed ourselves to be preached to and we've read in your word and and learned and, and, and those spaces were not occupied by faith. I pray, Father, you would help us to believe, to be like the Queen of the South, to make the great effort to hear one that is greater than Solomon. We thank you, Father, for these words, although they are hard and difficult and heavy. We know, Father, that we need them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.